Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Thursday edition of Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew at Bloomberg World Headquarters in New York as we begin with an eye on Israel today. There are serious questions right now about whether the truce between Israel and Hamas uh, will be able to continue. A lot's changed since this time yesterday. After negotiators chose to extend the pause, they did get it done late last night by just one more day. That's what we're in now, day seven. The latest extension did not come easily. With confusion over hostages, lists of names from Hamas, choppy communications between the two sides, and it's leading some to believe that this, in fact, may be it. There are also serious questions about what comes next. That's why Secretary of State Antony Blinken is back in Tel Aviv now. Talking earlier uh, with Benjamin Netanyahu about the next phase of this war, he says... Of course, we all know that fighting in Gaza will resume at some point. But of course, much has been accomplished over the course of this truce. Dozens of hostages released, humanitarian aid brought into Gaza. Anthony Blinken talked about that earlier in Tel Aviv. Here he is. From day one, we have been focused relentlessly on trying to secure the release of hostages from, uh, from Gaza and from Hamas. And we have seen uh, over the last week the very positive development of hostages coming home, being reunited with their families, and that should continue today. Uh, it's also enabled uh, an increase in humanitarian assistance to go to innocent civilians in Gaza who need it uh, desperately. So this process is producing results. It's important, and we hope that it can continue. His third trip since October 7th, and that's where we start our conversation with William Cohen. The former Secretary of Defense is with us, of course, now Chairman, CEO of the Cohen Group. Mr. Secretary, it's good to see you, and I appreciate your being with us here at this critical time. Do you think the truce ends today? Uh, Well, I think they're going to extend it perhaps one more day, but this uh, cannot go on indefinitely. Uh, The goal of the Israelis, obviously, is to get as many, if not all, of the hostages out before they resume uh, military action. But military action uh, will be forthcoming. Uh, You cannot afford to have Hamas remain intact as far as its infrastructure and leadership is concerned. And the Israelis are not going to sit back and say, well, we got our hostages back, but we'll live uh, with this kind of threat on our border uh, for the indefinite future. So that's not going to happen. So I would expect after the Israelis conclude they've got as many out as they can for the time being, mm-hmm. they're likely to start the uh, the bombing again. But they will do it on a, a less massive basis, a much more discreet, targeted basis, because they've seen the world reaction to when you have wholesale bombing and the killing of uh, innocent civilians. That uh, makes them not a victim anymore, but a villain in the eyes of all of those in the region and much of the world community. And so I think they'll take that into consideration, be much more targeted, much more direct, and uh, minimize the loss of uh, innocent civilians in the air. 
Well, that's certainly the hope of this administration, uh, of course, Mr. Secretary. That's one thing that Anthony Blinken is urging, but we know it's coming. Benjamin Netanyahu says there's no situation in which we do not go back to fighting until the end. Is That's a direct mm-hmm. quote. Hamas continues to say October 7th was a dress rehearsal. What are the optics going to be when this resumes? Well, uh, Mr. Netanyahu has made it clear that he has to uh, reduce, if not eliminate, the entire uh, infrastructure, the military infrastructure of Hamas. Uh, he's not going to yield on that point. But uh, you have the president, uh, President Biden and, and uh, Anthony Blinken sending the signal behind uh, the doors, so to speak, uh, through emissaries, perhaps even our uh, CIA uh, chief, uh, to say, be careful here, because we, you have uh, an existential interest uh, at risk here, but we have interests at risk in the greater region. We do not want to see this go further, because now our uh, troops will be certainly in the fire line. We'll have uh, some of the um, Islamic uh, groups targeting our soldiers, whether in Syria, uh, in uh, in uh, in. Uh, uh, the, the greater uh, Middle East and in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere. So I think we have an interest in helping the Israelis defend themselves and take on Hamas. We also have an interest in making sure this, uh, that the Israelis don't pursue their mission in a way that jeopardizes our interests in the region, mm-hmm. as well as the greater uh, stability between the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, uh, Qatar, all of those countries have an interest in seeing this not spread. So that is why Secretary Blinken, that is why President Biden is urging some restraint on the part of uh, Netanyahu. Secretary Cohen, Israel believes 145 hostages are still being held in Gaza. Once fighting resumes, is hope lost? It's not lost uh, because uh, the hostages were held um, um, before the uh, the attacks began by the Israelis. Uh, they didn't. Uh, the Hamas didn't kill all of them. They knew what they always do and know: the more they hold out, the more concessions the Israelis and the West is going to insist upon uh, before the hostages be released. So they're playing this very uh, deadly game. It's really vicious, cynical. We'll let a few out, and then we'll see how much uh, time we can buy in order to reposition our forces. Uh, we'll let a few more out, and we'll put the pressure on the Israelis to make more concessions. And that's the game they've always played and the one they're playing right now because the world opinion basically does not want to see people being killed. Uh, we're living in the age of information. You've got immediacy. You've got the intensity of it. You've got the polarization of uh, uh, public opinion. Uh, and then you have uh, all of that coming down. The Israelis saying, hey, back off. Yeah. You've made your point. Uh, you've killed enough of uh, the um, Hamas uh, fighters. So let's just go back to the way it was. And the Israelis are saying, no, we're not going back there. We're going to make sure that you're not going to ever do this to us again. So they're in it for the long haul. President Biden is saying, we're with you, but make sure you are much more discreet, much more concerned about killing innocent uh, Palestinians. The more you kill, the more enemies you're making, the less public support you're going to have. You have us, maybe the Brits, but there isn't anybody else in the world that's going to be with you. So we have a voice here. Our voice is one of urging restraint to the extent we can. And I think that is what's taking place right now. Fascinating. Uh, We were quick to move two carrier strike groups into the region 
following October 7th. We've talked about that, of course, the Jerry Ford and the Ike, and they've decided to move in different paths. But we've surged resources into the region. Maybe we should take credit for the fact that that's why we don't have a second or third front. You mentioned that as well, open at this point. But going forward, you ran the Pentagon, sir. What should be our military posture when fighting resumes? Uh, our military posture has to remain the same. This is a signal to um, Hezbollah, it's a signal to Iran, uh, to any who mean to see this thing spread, that we are there and we will respond. To the extent that you have the Houthis uh, firing missiles uh, at our ships, if you have any of the Iranian proxies uh, firing and targeting our soldiers, there's going to be a response. And we'll have a major response and calibrate that depending upon what they're doing. So if they have a major attack upon us. I think uh, all holes are are off at that point. So it's a signal that we're there. We're there as a deterrent. We're there to defend our uh, forces and to preserve the uh, the peace and stability to the extent it exists in the region. That's our mission. And can I just say one more word? Yeah, please. I I can't let this pass without noting the passing of Henry Kissinger, who was a dear friend of mine whom I'd known for 50 years. And I think that he would be one who certainly made every effort to bring peace to the Middle East, but so has every other former Secretary of State. But he was special, uh, and I think we won't see the likes of him ever again. Well, I'm glad you brought it up because I wanted to ask you about him. There's so much talk of legacy. Obviously, this is an American icon, but it's also a controversial man. You're speaking affectionately about him. What would you tell people who criticize uh, his activities, for instance, in, in, in Cambodia or Laos, and some people who would, would say that he, he violated international law? Uh, well, uh, Henry Kissinger was uh, the man in the arena, as was Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyone, anyone who steps in that arena is going to get criticism as well as compliments. Uh, I knew Henry Kissinger on a, a personal level and saw a different side of him. He certainly was brilliant beyond uh, measure. Uh, he certainly was concerned about order and peace. And there's a little paradox as you think about it. He would say, or paraphrase, he'll say, uh, you can't have, if you have liberty, uh, you have to have order. You can't have liberty without order. If you have liberty without order, you have a, you have a mess. If you have order without liberty, you've got a menace. Hmm. And Kissinger was always trying to balance, how do we preserve freedom? and balance that with having order. You cannot have one without the other, and I think that was his mission. And he made some very tough decisions, and yes, people died as a result of it, but most of us in the world is better off for Henry Kissinger having lived and given guidance to so many presidents over the years. It's pretty remarkable to think he was sitting in Beijing with President Xi just weeks ago, Secretary. I don't know when the last Uh time was you spoke with him, but what would he do right now with this situation in Israel? I saw him uh, most recently in April. Uh, there was a celebration of his 100th birthday at uh, the CSIS, the Center for Strategic International Studies. Uh, he was there with Eric Schmidt, former the head of uh, Google, and they were talking about AI. And once again, Henry was worried about artificial intelligence getting out of control, which would lead to an extinction level event. And that's what he's always been concerned about. His first book was Nuclear Power and Foreign Policy. That was the book he wrote back in 1970, I'm sorry, 1969. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's while he was professor at Harvard. Since that time, he had been writing about how do we maintain 
peace and order in an ever-turbulent spinning world, kaleidoscopic changes taking place, how do we preserve stability and order and freedom? That has been his life's mission, and it was right up until the time he died because he was working with Eric Schmidt on another follow-up book Hmm. on artificial intelligence. That's incredible. Well, it's not lost on us, uh, Secretary Cohen, that you and uh, (laughs) President Clinton were the first to return to Vietnam uh, after President Nixon visited. I know that your careers have overlapped in a lot of ways, and I'm glad that you could spend some time with us to talk about Henry Kissinger today, Secretary of Defense, formerly at the Pentagon, William Cohen. We thank you, sir, as always, for joining us today on Bloomberg. Come back and see us again soon. I'm Joe Matthew in New York as we assemble our panel. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are with us, Bloomberg Politics contributors. I didn't plan to go right into the Kissinger thing here. I'd like to talk to both of you more about what's happening in Israel. But Rick, you spent time with Henry Kissinger at a very similar event, unless it was the same one that Secretary Cohen Uh, just mentioned. He was talking about world affairs, geopolitics, and even meeting, as I mentioned, with President Xi at 100 years old. What was he like when you were with him last? Yeah, I think he he had the most vital 100th year of anybody's life. Um, Hmm. uh, The McCain Institute that I chair hosted him uh, for a very similar conversation with Eric Schmidt and the founder of Bloomberg News, Michael Bloomberg, to talk about AI and and I echo the comments that uh, the secretary gave just now about uh, Henry's uh, Kissinger's concerns about, you know, where does AI lead us? It's not where it is today. He was a very strategic thinker. He always thought five, six, seven steps along the way. And he was concerned that by the time you got there, you know, you couldn't contain uh, what could become a um, uh, a very dangerous uh, computer uh, capability. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, I thought it was very pressing. He'd written uh, a book uh, along with uh, Eric Schmidt uh, called The Age of AI, and it was really his latest passion, much like uh, the secretary said his beginning was in nuclear power. You know, his his final uh, work uh, was about the, the future of, of uh, electronic power. So, uh, and he was totally... Uh, totally conscious of world affairs. He spent a lot of time at our event in October uh, talking about Israel and uh, and Hamas. It had just happened a week earlier, and the incursion from Hamas into Israel, and, and he had his own point of view on it. And um, you could tell it, uh, that, that his great mind was still clued into current events, and it was, it was quite an amazing evening. I want to get Jeannie's view on this as well and get both of your takes on what's happening and is about to happen in Israel, in Gaza, as this story moves under our feet once again. Thanks for being with us. As always on the fastest show in politics, we've got a lot more with Rick and Jeannie as we just get wound up here on Sound On. And an about face on Capitol Hill. We'll talk about the funding battle as well. The Freedom Caucus is singing apparently a very different tune today. Maybe it prevents a government shutdown. That's next. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Secretary of State back in Tel Aviv today, his third trip there since the Hamas attack on Israel on the 7th of October And it's about the next phase because it does appear that this truce is about to end now a week long. It was extended by one more day last night. That's the day we're now in. 
as Israel waits to see what happens next. Of course, a lot of this is taking place through intermediaries, Cutter being one of them. Our CIA director is still there, and anything could happen. But at some point soon, it's likely, as we just discussed with the former Defense Secretary William Cohen, that the fighting is going to resume. The question is, what form will it take? And what will be the administration's posture at that point? We reassemble our panel with Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Jeannie, what's your thought on this? Are people too quick to call the end of this truce? There seemed like there was more optimism yesterday. Things got a little messy in talks last night. Are we going to see bombing in Gaza by the end of the day? You know, I don't know about the end of the day. Hopefully not. Hopefully it extends this pause. But the reality is, and Secretary Cohen is absolutely right, we are going to see bombing in Gaza. The militia, the military action rather will resume. The question is not if, it's just when, unfortunately. We know that. And I think he made a really, really important point, one among many, which is that the amount of sway that the United States has and needs to exercise over Israel mm -hmm. is dramatic. I mean, we saw that with the visit of the high-level military officials from the IDF to Congress the other day. And the fact that Blinken is there and so many of our public officials. The reality is we have a big voice there. We are very supportive, the you know, number one supporter they have, but we need to be very clear about where we will draw some lines on what they can and cannot do as we go forward. And that's got to be based on what's in our own interest if we're using public money to support them, which most people, including myself, think we should be doing. Rick, the rhetoric seems to speak for itself on both sides here. Secretary Cohen was expressing his belief, if if not hope, I guess, that you know there'd be a more restrained approach going forward here. But the truce may not end well. Uh, it didn't feel great last night when it looked like it might not be extended. We heard from Benjamin Netanyahu, who says, there is no situation in which we do not go back to fighting until the end. Some have wondered what exactly the end looks like here. We also know Hamas says October 7th was a dress rehearsal. Do you share his hope or could this be full bore fighting again in Gaza? Yeah, look, I mean, we, we sometimes confuse phraseologies. This has been a ceasefire to mm -hmm. allow humanitarian uh, aid to get into uh, Gaza, but also to allow uh, the work to be done to get the hostages out. There are still hostages there. There's still over, I think, 150 hostages or around 150 yeah, hostages. So there's still over a dozen women uh you know in in the in the hands of the Hamas so i know that that is israel's top priority they've said so they're 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 talking about extending the truce another day uh, the, the ceasefire another day but this is not a truce this is not a negotiated settlement between parties that said we're going to lay down our arms and stop fighting and so it should always have been expected and should be expected that that Israel would continue their strategy, which is the dismantling and and the eradication of Hamas. Hamas is an existential threat to Israel. They proved that uh, when they uh, incurred into Israel and slaughtered uh, uh, civilians. And and there's no uh, reason why Israel should not look at that and say, if we don't handle it today, it'll happen again in the future. It is the stated policy of Hamas to eradicate Israel. And mm -hmm. and so I, I think that it should not be expected until that tone changes that Israel should change its strategy. Sounds like it could start ripping. 
like uh, we were seeing just seven days ago. But of course, we'll find out together. And if this is extended, we'll let you know. So much of the conversation this week, Rick and Jeannie, has been about funding for Israel, how that may hinge on a deal on border security. But there's been an amazing development here in the debate over government funding that appears to be good news. You know, we, we could start shutting down in 50 days now that we have this staggered or laddered CR. And the chair of the Freedom Caucus is backing off. Apparently, the group is backing off its demands that we throw away the debt ceiling deal from months ago and cut top-level funding even uh, below the levels that were already agreed to with the White House, with former Speaker Kevin McCarthy and others. Let's hear from the chair of the Freedom Caucus, Scott Perry. Here's how he put it. It's still too much for many of us. But was agreed to around Memorial Day was this FRA number of $1.59 trillion. No more gimmicks. Most of the House voted for it. Most of the Senate voted for it. That's where we have to be. Don't be adding stuff onto it. Let's write the appropriations bills. Let's get the spending bills right. Let's set that as the number. And then when we do that, let's start conferencing bills. We're calling on our friends in the Senate. My colleagues here that are with us today already agree with this. We need Senate leadership to put the put these bills to conference. Let's get the process started where the American people know what's being spent, know how their members vote, and know what it's being spent on. Okay, well, Kevin McCarthy must be rolling right now, Jeannie, because he got fired for putting that deal together and having Democrats vote on a CR uh, to get us through all of this. And now it appears the Freedom Caucus feels differently. What is going on? And is it shut down suddenly less likely? Yeah, it it was fascinating when he made this statement. So many reporters thought that they potentially had misheard him, that the congressman had made a mistake and they're double checking. And no, he he apparently meant what he said. Uh, You know, the question is, why have they taken off suddenly their rose colored glasses and woken up to the fact that they do not control the Senate and they will get rolled by the Senate if they pursue this? Is this just as, you know, potentially could be an attempt to humiliate Kevin McCarthy all over again? It's really, really tough to tell. Um, I hope that it means that this is off the table, the idea that we would shut down again. But the reality is we can never tell because given how tight the House is, it takes just one member of this caucus. And at the same time this news is breaking, you've got this piece in Politico where you have members of the Freedom Caucus describing uh, the new speech speaker in some pretty negative terms, saying his performance has has plummeted, um, that he has raised, you know, their ire against him. So it's hard to tell if this is completely off the table and they're going to be working with some modicum of sanity or if one member will potentially do what Matt Gates did just, you know, a few mm-hmm. weeks ago. And Joe, you mentioned 50 days. I think that's 50 days for all of us real folks. But in Congress, I think we're looking at more like 19 or something. Yeah, so sure. they're going to have to get sure. moving on this really, really fast if they're going to get it done. So what do you think happened here, Rick? Uh, we know Speaker Johnson met with Mitch McConnell uh, what just two days ago. Did that lead to a couple of phone calls brought the uh, Freedom Caucus to the table? Or do you think the Freedom Caucus is just worried that the Senate would add even more money to that top line? Well, I don't think they're worried about adding more money. Uh, they, they've they got a number that uh, in the Senate, they're, they're adhering to the $1.59 trillion number, said so at the beginning and, and, and thought it was foolish for the House to try and renegotiate after agreeing to that number. So uh, the Senate's pretty stable on that. 
I think this is just a reality of what Jeannie was just saying, which is they've got very few days to actually pass seven or eight appropriations bills. And then as 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 uh, the chairman of the Freedom Caucus said, Perry, he's like, and then we have to conference those with the Senate because they are the House appropriation bills are full of all kinds of strange policies that they know are going to get stripped out by the Senate. So um, the one thing nobody wants is a continuing resolution for the balance of fiscal year 2024. I mean, like that's a nightmare for everybody. That means that all the money that was spent, appropriated and spent uh, for 23 looks exactly like the budget for 24. Nobody wins. It's all losers. And so I do think that's probably where they are going is, my God, if we don't get these appropriations bills done, you know, we're going to be stuck with a continuing resolution for the balance of the year. And that's a disaster. I think that might be an actual rational thought. I'm, I'm actually encouraged by this. Who would have thought today uh, with Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano? I think I deserve a little credit. I have not mentioned George Santos yet. Don't tell me this is not a policy driven show. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Hour 2 of Bloomberg Sound On with an eye on Israel And what could happen in the next few hours could be pivotal here. It does feel different now than it did at this time yesterday when there was hope, there was optimism for an extension of what is now a week-long truce. That optimism doesn't seem to be in the air quite the extent uh, like we saw yesterday. And it has a lot to do with the confusion that led to just the one-day extension last evening. Israel wasn't happy, uh, happy with the information on hostages that it was receiving from Hamas. There's great distrust here, and of course, we're working through intermediaries, and it's very difficult to follow the bead from what is clearly a minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour situation, and that's why we wanted to get uh, the take of Nick Wadhams, of course, Bloomberg's national security reporter, working out of Washington and joining us now on Sound On. Nick, it's great to see you, and thank you for your time. Is it likely that this ends tonight? Well, it's a great question, and it's one, obviously, that we are all uh, trying to figure out uh, the answer to. You know, there are a lot of questions here. For, for one thing, Secretary of State Tony Blinken is in the region. It would be a bad look for Israel uh, to end this uh truce uh, while he's there. So there is some impetus to have uh, at least another extension with the U.S. Secretary of State there. Mm -hmm. He also was was, uh, dropping the hammer a little bit on the Israelis saying, yes, you know, you should have the ability to proceed with the, the counter against Hamas. But, you know, at the same time, it must be done in accordance with international humanitarian law. So that was a shift in tone and emphasis 
the, the other issue that I'm thinking about is, you know, it's not clear how many more hostages Hamas actually has to trade. So the, the, the truce has operated under the premise that Hamas would release about 10 people every day right. in exchange for 30 Palestinians in Israeli jails. And how many more people do they have to keep that up? It's a mm-hmm. big question. It's really a important point because it seemed to really become clear last evening, Nick, that Hamas did not have the information that Israel thought it did. Israel believes 145 hostages are still being held in Gaza. Does anyone know where they are? Well, you know, the, the big issue there is, yeah, there, there may be 145 hostages, but the, the, the terms of this truce were really around the idea of Hamas freeing women and children. Yeah. And there were believed to be 70 or 80 uh, women and children, but also the issue was that some were held by Hamas, some were held by Islamic Jihad. So what you saw over the last couple of weeks, the reason why this was so fraught, was the U.S. and Israel really pressing Hamas to give them the list of names of people who they would be able to release, and also to acknowledge that maybe there were a lot of people they didn't know where they were, whether they were still alive, who was holding them. So the idea was, okay, you you release the folks you've got, and that also gives time for Hamas to basically get a sense for where those other people are and to be able to release them too. But, you know, the big question for this truce is if they want to extend it, they're going to have to start looking at the possibility of releasing Mm -hmm. men, releasing uh, Israeli soldiers. Uh, That's going to be a lot more complicated. Well, I'll tell you, once the fighting does resume, and that seems to be the determination on both sides here, Benjamin Netanyahu says, under no circumstances will we not finish this job. Hamas says October 7th was a dress rehearsal, Nick. And you wonder if there's any hope for hostages once fighting resumes. How could they possibly be protected? Well, I mean, that's the big question uh, that we're all trying to figure out, you know, because uh, it would look if uh, if Israel presses ahead with the campaign and then also moves further south, you know, there's going to be an even uh, larger humanitarian outcry because all of the civilians who fled north of Gaza, where did they go? They went south. And if Israel presses the campaign into the south, you're going to see more civilian casualties. Obviously, the location of a lot of those hostages is unknown. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they're in the north, but maybe they're also in the south. We don't know where Hamas is. So that's why you hear Blinken ramping up uh, his his admonitions. And, you know, the U.S. idea really being, listen, Israel says it's going to take as long as it takes to do this. But the U.S., I think, has a much shorter time horizon here. They're saying, listen, you have you have days or weeks to press ahead with this campaign. Mm-hmm. This is not going to be a months-long thing. Just the, the support is not going to be there, especially as you push south. So that's all questions they're grappling with. So lastly, Nick Wadhams, as the CIA director, yeah. is Bill Burns still in Qatar? And how significant is that? He seems to be the center uh, of at least our contribution to this deal. Well, I mean, you know, the CIA does not give (laughs) uh, much to our chagrin, does not give uh, day to day (laughs) updates on his whereabouts. But as far as we last knew, he was there. I mean, what you're seeing here is just I find completely fascinating because it it shows that the CIA director, very seasoned diplomat, uh, career uh, foreign service officer before his retirement, and then he joined the CIA. I mean, he is just absolutely the linchpin of this administration's efforts, and it, it looks like he has gained the trust of all sides. Obviously, he has the advantage. Unlike the Secretary of State, he can fly relatively incognito and doesn't have to take you know, a passel of journalists with him anywhere he goes. Yeah, right, right. Uh, but he clearly has the knowledge, the background that he helped negotiate the Iran nuclear deal uh, 
so you know he's got the experience to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. I think Biden's feeling is safe to say if anybody can get it done, it's Bill Burns. Isn't that amazing? I think this is going to end up being an amazing story. I realize it could take years for it to be told. Mm. Nick, maybe you'll write the book. Um, but that's there. There, that's got to be an incredible uh, room to be in to be a fly oh, on indeed, the wall. Indeed. Nick Wadhams, Bloomberg love National there. Security Team leader. You got that right. It's great to see you, my friend. Thank you for joining. Of course, from Washington, I'm Joe Matthew at Bloomberg World Headquarters in New York. The other big story we're balancing here has to do with what's taking place in Washington, the funding battle. Uh, Not just to fund Israel and Ukraine, but to keep the government open past January. And we've got a lot to work through here. There is a headline, as we told you, that the chair of the Freedom Caucus, Scott Perry, came out in front of the cameras abandoning demands for broad spending cuts that were included in the debt ceiling deal. Remember, they established a top-line number there. The Freedom Caucus thought it was still too high. Apparently, they're good with $1.59 trillion. Kevin McCarthy saying, why did I get fired again? And we want to bring in Mark Goldwine, the Senior Vice President, Senior Policy Director at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Mark, it's great to see you. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, Great to have you back on Bloomberg. Does this make you more optimistic about avoiding a government shutdown? Well, we certainly narrowed um, the disagreement. The Senate is still wants to spend at least $14 billion more than, than the deal. And even though the House says they want to take the Fiscal Responsibility Act deal, um, they've said they don't want to do a, a number of these side deals um, that increase the actual number. So there still is a pretty significant gulf between the House and the Senate but it's much narrower than it was before. And and I think they'll they'll be able to close it at least on a temporary basis. So what's your feel on this in general with the laddered CR? We haven't talked to you since uh, this idea first emerged here. We're going to start running out of money at the end of January. We will completely run out of money in February. Do you see another swing at a CR or can they get a bunch of spending bills done between now and then? Yeah, I think of the laddered CR more as rolling shutdowns, right? But it's, it's really just two sets of bills that are very close together. So at the end of the day, they need to deal one way or another by, by late January. Uh, my best guess is we don't get it done in time and we do another CR because that's just, uh, that's how Congress normally operates. But there's a path, there's a path to get full appropriations done. And the Defense Department, I think, is really starting to turn the screws because uh, when they're operating under a CR, uh, it's very limited what they're able to do. Yeah, the fact that the NDAA has become as political as it has tells us a lot about where we are. And there's the matter of supplemental funding that I already mentioned before you came on today, Mark, about Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan. And it seems to all be hinging on an agreement on the border. It's something that I talked about yesterday with Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis of New York. This is a Republican voice. Listen to what she said. The Republicans certainly want border security, but we're willing to work with the Democrats on uh, more visas to make sure people can come and work legally. We do have an employment issue in our country where we we uh, have a worker shortage. Uh, This can be addressed. It it could be a win win if we do it right. Mark, what do you think about this? It, It appears Democrats are opening their minds to the idea of asylum law changes. I realize there are sticking points when it comes to parole, but could we have a grand bargain on border security that would then allow everything else we just mentioned to fall in place? Well, I don't know if there's going to be a, a grand bargain, although, um, you know, the idea of securing the border better and increasing uh, immigration for, you know, in certain cases, I think has been been long explored and would be smart for the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's possible that a mini bargain on immigration or on the border 
could open the door to other funding, including for Ukraine and for Israel. Uh, I know there's there's a separate issue that the House does not want to vote for Ukraine and Israel together, and the president doesn't want them separately. That's not insurmountable. I mean, the House could pass two different packages, send them to the president the same day. Hmm. You know, he can sign them in the same ceremony and they both win. But it is a challenge. Well, I'll tell you, it's not the development that I expected today in terms of the Freedom Caucus here. And it makes me wonder your thoughts on how the speaker's doing. Mike Johnson got a pretty tough piece in Politico that a lot of folks are talking about here that the conservative right in the House is not impressed with his job so far. And what you just suggested, maybe another CR could mean he gets fired and follow in the path of Kevin McCarthy, doesn't it? Look, he's been at the job for like six legislative days. I think, uh, um, you know, so you wouldn't you wouldn't have your job review when he'd only been working for for two weeks. And not everyone has your patience. Uh, so it's t- time will tell, but it's far too early to make any kind of judgments one way or another. Well, maybe it is for you or for serious individuals, but it's his conference he needs to worry about. And I just wonder if that idea of a motion to vacate is still on your menu of options, or if that's something that that is going to rest with Kevin McCarthy? Uh, I, I think that um, the pressure against doing that again is so strong. I don't think they want to go through that again. Uh, it was very painful. And so I, he'd have to do something, I think, pretty bad to get a motion to vacate and mm. be vacated. Although you, you never know. You never know. As we spend time with Mark Goldwine uh, from the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, yeah, this is the part where I'll get a bunch of nasty grams, uh, Mark, but I have to ask you because it's, I realize it's part of your view here at the committee. When we start talking about budgeting, when we start talking about eliminating deficits, we never talk about revenue, should we? <laughs> yeah, well, no, we are talking about revenue right now. We're talking about tax cuts. Well, that's um, right. Raising news, revenue, to be clear. Yeah, apparently Democrats and Republicans want to come together and cut $800 billion more of taxes at the end of the year for businesses and for the child tax credit. This is exactly the wrong conversation. Uh, we are running $2 trillion deficits. Interest rates are four and a half, five percent 5%. Uh, and we're talking about tax cuts. That's crazy. But if you say, I'm going to raise taxes, you don't get elected, right? Uh, well, well, look, I mean, uh, one way or another, uh, we're going to have to close the gap between taxes and spending, and none of it's going to be popular. It's not popular to cut social security or cut defense or raise taxes, but it's also not popular to run massive deficits that lead to inflation, that lead to higher interest rates, that slow income growth, that put our trust funds in danger. So at some point they're gonna have to choose to do an unpopular thing to prevent an even more unpopular thing from happening. Well, so does the committee have a position on this? Would it include, for instance, rescinding the 2017 Trump tax cuts? Would that close the gap on a level that would please you? Uh, well, those tax cuts are already scheduled to expire in two years, mm. so rescinding them wouldn't save very much money. But as a first step, we shouldn't extend any of those tax cuts unless we have paid for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should look carefully. Look, some of them are good. It was a whole package. It did lots of things. Some was good. Some was bad. We should extend the good, build on the OK, ditch the bad and pay for it. Um, but all that's going to do is stop things from getting worse. Yeah. We're actually going to need to raise taxes. That's going to mean have to mean cutting tax breaks more seriously raising rates, looking at other kinds of taxes, maybe a carbon tax. And then that's not going to solve it. Also, we're also going to look at the spending side, get healthcare costs under control, extend our appropriations caps, make Social Security solvent. None of this stuff is going to be super popular because 
um, you know, because we've overpromised. Mm-hmm. We are promising more in government programs than we're raising in taxes, and something has got to give. You're going to have some chippy interviews in two years when that debate starts all over again. It'll be I'm even sure sooner than that. I'm sure it's just, you know, it's very interesting to me that we don't even have the conversation on most days when people are wringing their hands about deficits and debt in this country. Uh, And look, I guess this could take on a lot of different forms here, uh, Mark Goldwine. But at some point, we're going to have to get into it as we continue to kick the can. He's the senior vice president and senior policy director at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. It's good to see you, Mark. Thank you for joining and sharing insights today here on Bloomberg Sound On. It's the fastest show in politics. I'm Joe Matthew at World Headquarters in New York, rubbing elbows with the rich and famous. Thanks for listening to the Sound On podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern time at Bloomberg.com. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.